Welcome back everyone to Aspire to Lead, where we will be discussing the visions, inspirations, and experiences from top educational leaders. My name is Joshua Stamper, and you can connect with me on Twitter or on Instagram at Joshua Dub underscore Stamper. All right, Aspire listeners, you are in for a treat because I have a fantastic guest tonight. She is literally holding our foster baby as we speak. And this is in celebration of the four-year anniversary of the Spire Podcast. I couldn't think of a better guest than the love of my life, my wife, Leslie Stamper, as our guest this week. And I just want to say welcome to the podcast. Thanks, babe. <laughs> so we are sitting next to each other, and I really want to touch on a few things. Um, obviously, for most of you know, we are foster parents and have gone through a, a long journey, one that's been 10 years long. And before we begin on a lot of different topics on foster care, on teaching students with trauma, Leslie, will you just introduce yourself a little bit? I'm Leslie Stamper. Josh and I have been married a whole bunch of years. He <laughs> keeps track better than me. 18? Yeah. 18 years. We have five kids <laughs> plus one right now. Um, like you said, we've fostered for 10 years. I'm also a registered nurse and I work in the neonatal intensive care unit. And also, you are teaching. Oh, right, right, yeah. Well, sure. I guess I this this last year I homeschooled three of our five kiddos. For the teaching part, I know obviously you're a registered nurse. Now that you've had a chance with COVID to sit down and do online learning with multiple children in the house, because all five of our children were home at that time. But then now this past year, having three three students in the household and, and teaching them what is something that you've learned during that time working with with our three children that are adopted and and that have had some trauma yes when COVID started and all of our kids came home we finished out that first school year online as pretty much everybody else did and then that next full school year all of our kids were at home or online. So all of our kids were learning within the home. We had, let's see, four of them started out as online learners through a public school system. Halfway through the year, we unenrolled one. And so I was homeschooling a pre-K kiddo and then began homeschooling, what, I think a first grader halfway through the school year while the other three kids finished out that school year online. And then that next year, this current year that we're in right now, our two oldest we sent back to in-person and our three youngest homeschooled all three of them. And I think the biggest thing, it, it wasn't a huge surprise, but just realizing how unique each of their brains were so I, I combined them where I could, you know, as far as maybe reading the same books, but then having them respond to them in different ways, but at different grade levels, their appropriate grade levels, but really learned that the way that they both interacted with the materials and the type of materials that we had, as well as the way that they interacted with me and my instruction, they're all three very, very different. And some of that is personality, but some of that really is learning need, behavioral need, and approaching their learning with a trauma-informed perspective. So you talk about trauma-informed perspective, and I want to touch on that because I know a lot of people listening may have heard the, of that term, but they may not understand truly what trauma-informed strategies look like. So what are some things that you've tried to use within the home 
or what are some strategies that you have learned as a parent that you hope other educators can use? So I, I think, you know, knowing, knowing our kids' histories and knowing that they approach challenges in a way that could heighten the fight, flight, freeze type of response. When I'm teaching them at home, I try to stay aware of what their bodies and their mouths both are doing. And are they showing me that they are even ready to learn from the get-go? Um, are they well-regulated and in a state where they can receive information, especially challenging information for, you know, each of them have strengths and weaknesses. So if they are at a point where they are not ready to engage in a subject that I know is going to really challenge them that day, then there's something else that we will do first to get them ready. And that could be something as simple as chewing gum or playing with Play-Doh while I read to them. Or sometimes they come to the table and one of them is just on and ready to go. And I can give them, you know, the, the subject material that's more challenging for them. And while another kid needs to go and do something else, like a puzzle or something to help them get to that ready state. I think also because there are also some things that I just choose to let go because it really doesn't impact their learning. Like I have one kid that completed his entire school year only in blue marker. Um, Every single thing he wrote, every math page, everything is in blue marker because that's all he's willing to write in. (laughs) And that is just fine. I have one kid who writes all of his stories on graphic novel pages. It helps him organize he could if I required him to write on lined paper, but graphic novel pages, yeah, it helps him organize his thoughts better. So all of his stories are graphic novel. We're coming at this topic in a lot of different ways as parents, as educators. And I'm curious because we have students, we have children both here at home, but we also have them in the public education system. You know, as a parent, what do you wish educators knew about children who have experienced trauma and are going to school every day with with these challenges? One thing I I try to keep in mind, and I'd I'd hope that teachers would try to keep in mind too, is that sometimes the behavior just, if if there's negative behaviors that you're seeing in the classroom, sometimes it's, it's not about you. There's an entire 18 hours of things that that child has gone through since they last saw you, and they may be carrying some of that baggage with them into the classroom and it spills over there. Alternately, sometimes the way an adult approaches a child, whether it's um, with tone of voice or physical demeanor, that could be a trigger to a child. So sometimes while it's not necessarily about you as a person, it might be the way that you're presenting yourself has caused a honestly a fear response in the child that they can't verbalize it that way it may it may show itself as anger may show itself as um, hyperactive outburst lack of self-control but they the kids just carry so much with them day to day and uh, I would even suggest that they may not be able to verbalize it or identify it and just know that there's a yucky feeling that they are responding to So I want to pull out a word that you use, a trigger. So for students who have gone through trauma and something has triggered them, 
what does that even mean? What could be a trigger in the classroom? And what could be a response from a trigger? All right, so a trigger would be anything that causes a memory response. And it isn't necessarily going to be an active memory response in the child. It could be a stored subconscious response, but something that has a negative association to an experience from the past. It could be, um, you know, a real common example that we hear a lot is from war veterans coming home and then hearing a car backfire. And that backfire sound reminds them of gunshots in a war zone, and they could have a very strong response of, um, you know, hiding under a desk or something like that because their body thinks that they're in danger, even though their mind knows that they are no longer in that war zone. Same thing for a child. And it could be something like a fast movement from behind. It could be somebody with a height difference to the child standing over them. It could be something as simple as a smell that triggers a memory in them and makes the child feel that they are not safe or they are in imminent danger and need to do something to protect themselves. I remember a story, and and you'll be able to tell it better than I, but I remember from either foster training or from a friend about a child that was in the back seat driving to school and there was a trigger and there was a unfortunately a negative behavior that was caused due to the trigger. Do you mind sharing that story? I think that one was from foster care training. So as as best as I remember it, the foster parent was driving the child someplace and they would pass uh, their route. I believe it was to and from school, but mm-hmm. they would pass an apartment complex every day and the child would start acting out, you know, being with fearful responses, not anger responses, but crying, upset, withdrawn at that site. And once the foster parent realized that it's this one particular apartment complex, that apartment complex uh, visually resembled where the child had lived before removal. And so she was able, the foster parent was able to change the route that they drove to school, to and from school each day. And then that eliminated that one specific trigger for the child. And the child was able to transition to school and home after school in a much more calm manner without having that moment of increased anxiety on the drive. So I want to touch on anxiety because I think that is something that occurs a lot with our students, especially after the pandemic. I think that's only heightened and that percentage has only gone higher. But for our students with anxiety, I know that you've worked with a lot of instances of that. What are some things that you do to to calm anxiety within students? And what are some strategies that you would ask teachers to use within their classroom? I think I would wrap behaviors that present like ADHD into that as well. Mm -hmm. There's some research that shows that there's a heightened ADHD diagnosis with kids who've experienced trauma, whether it is the same neurochemical response in the brain as children who have not experienced trauma is, I don't think it is the same, but the behaviors overlap. So we see a lot of both ADHD and anxiety in children who have experienced trauma in the past. And for me, I haven't really found much that works as well as simply coming alongside the child and knowing what it is that helps them calm. I think this is an opportunity where there really has to be a working relationship between the parents or foster parents 
and the educators to work together as a team and to recognize what are the methodologies that do help a child calm down. I have seen anything from guided deep breathing to gum. I, I know at my kid's school they have what they call an ice cube, which is basically an area of the room with a whole bunch of sensory toys. And I have one kid who really responded very positively to that and then came home and created one at home for himself. <laughs> I've also seen uh, positive reward systems work very well, but really only when the positive reward is also personal connection. Meaning like I had one kiddo when they were in school would earn things like a walk around the campus with different staff members, the school nurse, the assistant principal, a race across the gym with the campus principal. And those positive positive rewards that also created interpersonal connection with staff members and my student were very effective. Alternately, other forms of reward I've seen be counter-effective, such as dojo points or PBIS reward systems when, when it's public and the kids who are not getting rewarded are aware of it. That is really counterproductive to the reward system and increases the anxiety for my students, my kiddos who were in those classrooms. Yeah, unfortunately, we've seen a positive behavior intervention system in place that has been just as much negative as positive. So I can totally agree with that. But that's a that's another topic that we won't go into. But Leslie, what I always ask my guests is for leadership advice for aspiring leaders. And that's how I usually close the episode. And so with this topic, as far as trauma-informed care and potentially um, some strategies for anxiety and other struggles in the classroom. What are some things that our aspiring leaders can do tomorrow or next week that can enhance their skills working with students with trauma? I, I think it starts with parent communication and creating a team atmosphere with the parent. I have had a number of teachers who were absolutely excellent in creating opportunity for my kids who struggle with attending a traditional school environment, making it just helping them even make it through the day. And by taking their own initiatives, these were not school-wide initiatives, and it wasn't even something that was across their entire classroom, but being creative and finding a way to meet the needs of my child and helping them to simply get out of the car at the beginning of the school day and walk into campus and celebrate when they had done that successfully for one or two or three days in a row. I also recognize that everyone listening to this has not just three learners that they are trying to tailor their education towards and the way that they interact. They are working with 22, 28, 32 students, and then at the secondary level, 150. You know, they have tons and tons of kids walking through their class each day. And now having some of my kids be home for a year or two, and then some of my kids returning back, I'd say across the board, the thing that helps them get through the day the most is a teacher who knows their name and 
shows a genuine interest in how they are and notices if something is off that day. Even if my kids don't take up the opportunity to verbalize that there is a need or a worry or a concern at that moment when they're in that teacher's classroom, the fact that they were noticed has made the greatest impact on them. And I think a teacher who is able to really see their kids is automatically a leader who my kids respect. This podcast is a proud member of the Teach Better Podcast Network. Better today, better tomorrow, and the podcast to get you there. You can find out more at teachbetter.com slash podcast. Now let's get back to the episode. All right. So over the years, you have been in the world of foster care. You are connected to so many different people in that realm. And I know that this is something that you research often. For our listeners that want to learn more about this topic, would you provide just some resources that they can go to 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 learn more about trauma-informed practices? Oh, yes. Okay. Suggesting books is one of my favorite things. Um, So a great starting place is The Body Keeps the Score by Bessel van der Kolk. It's really a book that all of us in the trauma-informed world have had our hands on at some point in time. And one that our the foster care doctors had suggested to me is called The Mystery of Risk. And it the subtitles Drugs, Alcohol, Pregnancy, and the Vulnerable Child. It's by Ira Chasnoff, and it talks about long-term impacts of in utero drug and alcohol exposure, um, including learning and educational needs. And then anything by Bruce Perry, his most recent book with Oprah called What Happened to You is a very easy read. I've heard it's a great audiobook. It's written in the form of a conversation and talks about trauma, resilience, and healing. And then our oldest just finished reading Far From the Tree by Robin Benway. And it's a YA book, and it's about three biological siblings who each have different experiences within the foster care and adoption world. And she really liked it a lot. And as someone who's grown up um, as a foster sibling since she was, what, five years old, four years old, uh, her input, her input on that matters a lot on what is well representative and respectful of children in foster care and who have been adopted. Mm-hmm. Well, typically at this point in the podcast, I ask how people connect with you on social media. <laughs> <laughs> no. So no? no, no, okay. So, and if you do have any questions for Leslie, you can reach out through social media. Um, you can DM me and I'll get her response or you can email me at joshua at teachbetter.com and I can definitely find that information from you if you're looking for more perspective from her. I know she didn't throw out her social media handles, but there's definitely a way to get in contact with her uh, through me. So if you do have any questions, feel free to ask those and we will make sure that we respond accordingly. And I do want to send everyone to a few blogs. So I had the pleasure of writing with Leslie um, three times, and all three blogs are on my website, joshsamper.com. So the first one was In the Face of Trauma, and the second one is The Language of Behavior, and the third one that we co-wrote was 
the history of trauma and all three obviously are from two different perspectives one being from the parent perspective which is leslie and then from an administrative perspective was me so that was a joy to write with her and if you want more information on this topic and from those two perspectives obviously you can go to joshstamper.com slash blogs to find those and leslie i just want to say thank you so much I know this isn't your favorite thing to do, but I do appreciate your insight and what you were able to provide to so many leaders on this podcast. Thanks, babe.